Okay, welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to part two. Part two of our season finale, three-parter. Picking up where we left off with part the car one. crash, yeah. I think we just have to dive into it again because I think this one's going to be just as long as the last one, I'm assuming. Yes, I think it may be because there's a lot of details, like we said, for part one. But part two has just the, amount, the same amount as details. So <laughs> a lot of details. a lot of details. I mean, we could have split this up in like 10 episodes probably. But I mean, yeah, there's a whole podcast like dedicated yeah, to this topic. Yeah, there are several. But we're trying to convolute it. So it's going to be a little... Just stick with us. Some of this is probably going to be like free thought too. So yeah, we're going to try to keep it together and bring you everything that happened since we left off last time at the scene of the accident. Yes. So this week we bring you part two of the missing persons case of Mara Murray. And just as a recap, on the evening of February 9th, 2004, Mara's car crashed on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. To this day, her whereabouts remain unknown, but her disappearance has made international headlines and her story is one of the most followed missing persons cases throughout the world. So on part one, we left off at the crime scene and there's no trace of Mara. There's no activity on her cell phone. There's no activity in her bank accounts. And overall, it's just very weird. So let's go a little in depth into the crime scene. The first thing everyone notes in the crime scene is the inconsistent damage to the car. The police report stated that the car went off the road, struck some trees, and then spun out or around and came to a stop in a snow ditch, facing the wrong way. The driver's side of the windshield was cracked and both airbags had been deployed. Given the damage to the Saturn, it seemed questionable as to whether it was the result of hitting a tree. Early investigators included Frank Kelly and John Healy, and they were doubtful of this fact. Healy, in particular, believed that the damage to the Saturn was the result of having struck the underside of another vehicle at a low rate of speed. So one thing that, so both airplanes were deployed and we looked into that really quickly because we weren't sure if that was normal. Basically, if there was one person in the car, would it make sense that both deployed? Like, I wasn't sure about that at first because I'm not a mechanic. Oh, like would it sense the weight on the seat? Right. Like, is it normal that both would go off if one person's sitting there? And I think after like a very quick Google search. So call me out if I'm wrong. If you're a mechanic, yeah, let us know. (laughs) It does seem like with an older car like that from the 1990s that that would be common because basically they didn't have that feature yet where now we have where it knows like the passenger side airbag is only deployed if a certain amount of weight is there. So now I think in commonly in cars now, if it's just the driver sitting down, just the driver should be deployed. But I believe with older cars, both would be deployed. So I do not think it's odd that both airbags went off if it was just Mora in the car. Because gotcha. I think some people might say, well, doesn't that lend to a Someone passenger? was sitting right in the passenger seat that made it go off. Okay. Right. We asked Julie a question about the airbags as well. And she said, quote, it's not clear what caused the damage to the Saturn or how slash why she crashed. The way the car was found, sort of parked off the side of the road in the opposite lane, facing the wrong way, is baffling. There weren't any skid marks in the road, both airbags deployed, and the driver's side windshield was cracked. The car was supposedly locked when Cecile Smith arrived. The black box report from the car confirmed it was only involved in one collision, but it doesn't provide a timestamp. It is very strange, end quote. So that was a good fact that we had not really heard of in a lot of black box. Yeah. in a lot of articles or anything. I think we actually talked about it in part one. We did kind of talk about that. Yeah. But basically the black box is a black box. As we described. I do remember talking about that. (laughs) I do. We have no idea what it is actually. But it records things in your car mechanically. (laughs) Yeah. That's the best. I would say that's probably right. So it did pick up a collision. It just doesn't have a timestamp and Obviously, it's not going to tell us the details of the collision, just that the car was hit. So that's all we know. And also, I think to note, so we did post a couple of pictures of the car on our Instagram. So go there and check it out to see, like, the damage we're talking about. Um, And also to note, for the driver's side cracked windshield, it was cracked, according to reports, from the inside out. Right. So that's interesting 
Because it means something, something hit the window it from the inside. I guess that could mean it could have been Mora. Like she could have hit her head on the windshield. And in that case, I would think that would be that would do a lot of damage. Oh, definitely. But I would also think that there would be blood. Mm-hmm. There, yeah. There would have but been I, a lot, I think. I think. Right. I, I guess I don't really know. It could have also been something else inside the car that hit it from the inside, like something that went flying during the crash, like the box mine. Right. So the only, like, experience that I've had with a cracked windshield like that from the inside was a pretty low collision rate speed going. We braked too hard, and the person's dog had one of those, like, metal collars. No, they didn't. The dog was okay, but the metal collar ended up hitting, like, the side of it, hit the windshield, kind of in the middle, but, like, the same area, like, the same height, Mm. and hit that area, and it cracked kind of the same way. But it was, like, it just hit it just perfectly, like the metal collar. Right. So it wasn't even that high of an impact, but it made it noticeable. Yeah, it, depending on what hit the window, it That's could true. have if been something. Blunt. Yeah, hmm. yeah, we're definitely not experts in the matter. Not experts at all, but that's the only instance I've had of like an inside crack. Yeah, but then again, if it was the boxed wine, I mean, there was some wine, and we kind of talked about this, but there was some wine a little bit on the ceiling and on the driver's side door. So maybe right. if there wasn't a lot of wine. Like, was the spout of the box, would that be enough to impact it? Right? I, don't I don't know. You'd have to be going fast. And in that case, it would make sense that she wouldn't have made it around that corner. But if it was her that hit it, that I would think that would definitely be do really damage. I would think. Up. But I would also think you'd be able to get DNA. So I don't, I don't know. We don't know what hit it. But interesting to know that it was from the inside out. Right. Interesting to know also that the some people don't think, although I kind of could see, because I looked at the hood damage and it kind of did to me seem like it could be from hitting a tree, but I don't know. I don't know. Oh, like if it got tapped or something? Yeah. But moving on from the car, um, alcohol is another thing that comes up in the crime scene investigation. Also, I feel like we should know, we keep calling it a crime scene, but technically it's not a crime scene that we know of. It could be, but it's a crash scene for all we know of. So if you hear us say crime scene and you're like, it's not a crime scene, um, get over it. We're just using that word. (laughs) So we talked about this in part one, but the police noted that there was red liquid on the driver's side of the car after the crash along the interior of the driver's side door and on the ceiling. They believe that that was from the box of red wine. According to the accident report, police also recovered a Coke bottle that contained red liquid with a strong alcoholic odor, according to whoever documented it. That bottle was recovered when the vehicle was towed, so most likely that bottle was underneath the car. So I I listened to a little bit of the 107 Degrees podcast, and they were talking about this, and one of the hosts had offered an alternative answer to that Coke bottle, and it was pretty interesting. I mean, I can't do it all justice. You'd have to go and listen to it, but she suggested basically that that red liquid could be exhaust fluid, um, I guess there there are certain types of exhaust fluid that are red. It smells like alcohol because it's exhaust fluid. Interesting. Um, and I, you know, this car had issues, so maybe it would make sense that she would carry around a bottle of exhaust fluid in her trunk or something. So she thought it could have been that. Again, we don't know, but that's what the police noted. And then again, we kind of talked about this in part one, but just to note, Julie did say that that boxed wine that was found in the car had already been purchased that prior Saturday night, not that day, and it had just been left in the car. Um, And as we also mentioned, there was a nip of Bailey's as well. So a lot of people speculate that some of the alcohol Maura purchased earlier in the day was not in the car. They think she bought a lot more and it wasn't in there. So what does that mean? Did Maura walk away from the car after the accident and just take liquor with her or did she maybe have a bottle and use it as a weapon did she just throw it out the car because she didn't want to get in trouble but as we said before the bottle of Kahlua that many people think Mora had purchased that day we now know that she did not purchase a bottle of Kahlua at all that day but there may have been other things that she had purchased that were not in the car after the accident and like we kind of said, this is an ongoing case, and there's probably definitely things out there that we don't know for a reason. The police know, and they're hanging on to it. For example, if the general public knew that the alcohol was in a black bag, everyone would call and say, I found this black bag, blah, 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 blah. Right. So it is possible that there were things that she had purchased that weren't in the car, but it's a very unclear area 
And I think it's unclear for a reason, but we at least know that she didn't buy the Kahlua. So, right. And then another, maybe possibly very odd part of the crime scene, crash scene, whatever you want to call it, that comes up in every single thing that you hear about the story. They always talk about the rag in the tailpipe. Always. It's it's one of those things where it's either a huge detail or it's a nothing detail, just like everything else. It could be a red heron. But to describe it a little bit, so at the scene of the crash, someone had noticed a rag stuffed into Mora's tailpipe of Mora's car. I think I read that it was one of the EMT guys that was on scene. He just noticed it in the tailpipe. You know, that's odd off the bat, but at some point Fred was asked about that rag and he said it was something he had advised Mora to do in order to avoid being ticketed by police for the excessive smoke coming out of the tailpipe. I guess he said that she kept the rag in her trunk in case she ever needed to use it. So that's what Fred says. Now, again, we're no mechanics, trust us, but I will say the majority of consensus from the online community, even just everyone I've talked to, that that's odd. Like, that's an odd request from a father to put a rag in a tailpipe. Most people I've seen or heard comment on this are, like, perplexed that a father gave that advice. And they agree that not only is it not a great way to fix the car issues, but it's actually a really bad idea and could be really dangerous. So I asked my dad about it. And granted, he's also no mechanic. <laughs> not a mechanic. No offense, dad. But he did say he would never give me that advice. So I guess he knows enough to know not to do that. But I don't know. Like, was it a temporary thing? Perhaps he was going to take a look at it when she came home, Fred. Or they were waiting until their next paycheck to get it fixed because we know this car is kind of run down. We talked to Julie a little bit about that because we just have to bring up the Ragnar tailpipe. And she does agree it's weird. Um, she confirmed that her dad did suggest to Mara to use the rag in a situation where she might be in trouble with police. Because she had asked her dad about it. And, I mean, Julie straight up told us that she told her dad that was a dumb idea. She does not know why her dad suggested that. She admitted she loves her father, but they don't always agree on everything, you know, as is usually the case. And she does agree that that was bad advice on her part. But, I mean, that's, or on his part, but that's what he said. So, the closest person I know to a mechanic is my friend who's not a mechanic, but (laughs) he does know a lot about cars. Shadow Adam, thank you very much for the advice here. But I asked him about this and basically asked, would it ever, ever make sense for someone to put a rag in their tailpipe? And his first answer was actually kind of surprising to me. I I was kind of taken aback because he said, isn't that a signal for bad people? Like bad people came? And I was like, wait, what? With like out even knowing that you were talking about the Marmalade Yeah, which is so it kind of freaked me out. That is interesting. Ooh. What are you talking about? I kind of got like hair on the back of my. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, I just got goosebumps. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He was like, wait, I think that's a signal for bad people. What? He said, similar to a white flag on a mirror. Wait, a white flag on a mirror? Is a, a, what? How does he know this? I don't know. I've never heard of any of this before. He said, like, or she left and went with someone. And he said, I believe my gramps said that once. Oh. So I said, that's very odd. I've never heard of that. Um, Okay. I guess that's one idea. However, now that I've had some time to think about it, it it wasn't a rag that was like, well, I guess we don't know. But in my head, it wasn't a rag that was flying out of the tailpipe. Like it was stuffed in there. Yeah. That's what I would think. If I heard rag in the tailpipe, I would think stuffed. Right. 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 There's no picture of it, right? Anywhere? No, no, there's no picture of it as far as we know. I mean, no, I don't think so because that would be something that I've def- I would have definitely seen. I think they just noted it mm. but didn't take a picture. So that it did kind of creep me out, but I don't think that's a good explanation for it in this case. And then I can I went on to just say like it well, you know, in this case the dad advised the daughter to do this if she her car was kind of smoking and she didn't want to get in trouble and I said, "Is that does that make sense? Is that good or bad advice and he said that's one of the worst examples of advice from a dad if so and i said okay he said she could possibly die people do die that way you know it who knows it would be really slow because it's not circulating back in the carbon monoxide but it could still happen um basically he just said no bueno not a good idea not good advice 
And I said, okay, thank you. That is the consensus. So that kind of makes sense. Right. But he couldn't think of a good reason it would be in there, basically. One other thing is that people have brought up is that that, that is a way to t- test a car, basically. I think at if you go to a mechanic and need to get if to see if you have an exhaust leak, one way they can test it is to actually put a rag up there and I guess see if anything's coming out and if there is, there's a leak. Something like that. Don't quote yeah. me on that. You cover the end and then if the exhaust pushes your hand off the pipe, there's no leak. But if it doesn't, it's coming out Probably of another coming hole. Out of another hole, right. That makes sense. So, but you'd take the rag out when you're done. If you're a competent mechanic, you would, right? Right. But also, interesting enough, if you put a rag in the tailpipe, it could cause your engine to stall. So, yes. was she the one who put the rag in? No one knows. Right. Well, that is another reason why this comes up so many times is because there are a lot of people out there who think the rag was placed there by someone on purpose. Like maybe it was somebody that was following more and wanted her car to stall so that they could scoop her up, basically. So maybe they put it there on purpose. But I don't really buy that because if if the rag had been there from the beginning, I don't think there's any way for her to drive on the highway for multiple hours with this rag shoved up there. Unless it was so far up there. But in that case, I don't think anyone would see it. Yeah, this is why this is this detail always gets brought up. Right, There's so many unknowns about it. It's just so strange that I think people get kind of get carried away with it. But this is my opinion on the or on the on the rag on the rag. Okay, I was about to say on the red heron, but (laughs) no, it's (laughs) the rag. Um, If I had to speculate, I do. I would. I believe Fred. I, I. You know what? Maybe he's not a mechanic either, and maybe it was like a last ditch attempt to. If your car is smoking and you're in a situation where for some reason you think the police are coming by and you just want it hidden shove it up there it doesn't make sense maybe he did say like if your car is idled and you're not in it maybe i I don't know but i do think that she probably did keep it in her trunk a lot of people keep a rag in their trunk if her car had just spun out at that time for some reason maybe there was some kind of mechanical issues going on like smoke coming out or something right so maybe there was smoke coming out of her car in that moment and the girl's probably shook up. She doesn't know what's happening. She just got into an accident. She's 21. She's most likely scared of the police at this point. And she just got into another accident before. Yep. Yep. She doesn't want to get in trouble by the police, I'm sure. So in my head, I'm thinking she saw the smoke, just got nervous. And like one of the first things she just thought was, oh, no, the police are the smoke. They can't see that. And yep. just shoved the rag up in there yep. just so it wasn't coming out like in that moment. Right. And did not like drive with it in. Right. So we don't know for sure why it was in there. Obviously, we just know it was in there. It was still in there a few days later. By the time Fred had been up there a few days later, it was still in there. He recognized it, gave that theory for why it was there. I just don't think it could have been in there for a long time beforehand because I don't think it would have stayed in the tailpipe. But again, I don't know. So again, we asked Julie about it. She's kind of on the same page as all of us. I mean, she thinks it's weird. She doesn't think it's good advice to put it in the tailpipe. She said maybe it's important. I mean, basically, she said you can't rule anything out, um, which you'll hear in our interview in the next part. But, I mean, there are other things that she picked up on that she thinks could have been more important, like the fact that, and I don't think we really go into that too much, but there's reports about a red truck that was in the area at the time. I think people saw the red truck parked at the gas station that Mora had been to. She had stopped at a gas station. People saw the red truck at the gas station. Um, I guess they weren't familiar with it. And, you know, at a small town like this, if people see a car they don't recognize, it's a big deal and they remember it. So it was one of those cases. They thought looking to the red truck, but nothing came out of it. I also do remember listening to something about all the psychics that have tried to cover this case. Because with every case like this, you get psychics coming out of the yes. woodworks with their ideas. And I guess a few of them had said, like, oh, a red truck. And I I guess I didn't know about it. I don't know. She said something like, that might be important. Maybe not so much the rag and the tailpipe, but I, who knows? Or maybe if the person that had the red truck did have their eyes set on more and they were out to get her, maybe that's when the rag went in. If somebody did shove it up there, it would make more sense to be placed a few minutes beforehand on the back roads versus the highway. So that would make more sense. 
it's just another one of those things where you can really get caught up on the case and think that this is going to make or break it. But it could be a simple explanation of. Right. And that's like all of the. That's everything. So it's theories. hard. It's hard to. It's very hard. Yeah. You got to go with the. This is why this case annoys me, though. And I'll talk about this more later. Not annoys me, but frustrates me is because my theory is always like what is the most makes the most sense. The least jumps and bounds, if you will. Right. Mm-hmm. So in my theory or in my thoughts, the least jumps and bounds to get to the answer would just be she just put it there. Right. Right after the accident. And not like somebody else traced her down and shoved it in there. But I can't relate that theory to the overall crime because what is the least assumptions in my head for the, what happened to her is she just walked off. But that doesn't make any sense. So I cannot wrap my head around it. But we'll talk more about it later. <laughs> I guess. But we'll go more into yeah. it. So. So now we're going to just bring you the full circle after what happens after the car crash. At 12.36 p.m. on February 10th, the following day after the accident and disappearance, a bolo, be on the lookout, report for Mara was issued. She was reported wearing dark coat, jeans, and a black backpack. A voicemail had been left on Fred's home phone at 3.20 p.m. stating her car had been found abandoned. He was working out of state and did not receive the voicemail. At 5 p.m., Mara's older sister contacted her father to tell him of the situation. He immediately contacted the Haverhill Police Department, and they told him if Mara was not reported safe by the following morning, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department would start a search. At 5.17 p.m., Mara was referred to first as missing by the Haverhill Police. We talked to Julie a bit about the timing of when the family found out Mara was missing. Mara's accident happened around 7.30 Monday night, and the family was not contacted until the next day, Tuesday afternoon. And because the family was out of state, they couldn't get up to New Hampshire until Wednesday. Julie said her father basically headed up there and was there at the break of dawn. So there were a couple of days of missing time here. On February 11th, Fred arrived early in Haverhill, New Hampshire. The New Hampshire Fish and Game, the Murrays, and some other people began a 20-mile search along Route 112. A police dog tracked the scent from one of Murray's gloves 100 yards east of where the vehicle had been discovered but lost the scent. There were no footprints in the snow. She literally just up and vanished. This led police to believe that she had left the area in another car. At 5 p.m., Murray's boyfriend Bill and his parents arrived in Haverhill. On the way, Murray's boyfriend had turned his cell phone off during the flight, and at some point during that time, he received a voicemail that he believed was the sound of Mar sobbing. The call was traced to a calling card issued to the American Red Cross. He was interrogated in private and then was joined by his parents for questioning. Just a comment too. It's confirmed that that call that Bill got that he thought was more at first definitely was not her. It was the Red Cross, which is odd, but they had called. I don't even know what it was for, but I think the woman like messed up or didn't know what she was doing or got nervous or something. And she was kind of like whimpering or wasn't really making a noise, but it was the Red Cross. So confirmed not Mara. At 7 p.m., the police said they believed Mara came to the area to either, one, run away, or two, commit suicide. The Murray family believes to this day that both were very unlikely. On February 12th, Fred and Bill held an evening press conference in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. At 3.05 p.m., the police reported Mara may be headed towards the Kingamayas Highway area, and she was listed, quote, as endangered and possibly suicidal. They also stated she was intoxicated at the crash site. The Haverhill police chief said, quote, our concern is that she's upset or suicidal, end quote. A week later, Fred and Bill were interviewed by CNN's American Morning. The Murrays expanded their search into Vermont and were dismayed that authorities there had no idea of her disappearance. And although a missing persons case is normally handled by local police and state police, the FBI joined the investigation just 10 days after her disappearance. The Haverhill police chief disclosed the search was now nationwide. The New Hampshire Fish and Game conducted a second ground and air search using a helicopter with a thermal imaging camera, tracking dogs, and cadaver dogs. 
A pair of ripped white woman's underwear was found lying in the snow on a secluded trail near French Pond Road on February 26th, but the DNA did not belong to Mora. At the end of February, police returned the items from Mora's car to the Murrays. On March 2nd, the family checked out of their motel they had been staying in, but Fred Murray returned almost every weekend to continue the search on his own sometimes. In April, complaints were filed on him for trespassing on private property. In April, and then again in June, New Hampshire and Vermont police dismissed any connection between Mora's case and that of Brianna Maitland, a Vermont woman who disappeared one month after Mora was last seen. In a press release, they stated they believed, quote, Mora was headed for an unknown destination and may have accepted a ride in order to continue to that location, end quote adding that they had discovered no evidence that a crime had been committed. They dismissed the possibility of a serial killer being involved. On July 1st, police retrieved the items found in Mara's vehicle from her family for forensic analysis. On July 13th, a one-mile radius search was performed by nearly 100 searchers, including state troopers, rescue personnel, and volunteers. This was the fourth search around the crash area and was the first that was performed without any snow on the ground. Authorities were interested in locating a black backpack that Moore had in her possession at the time, but it was not found in her car, so they thought maybe they'd find it without the snow. But the search discovered nothing conclusive, quote-unquote. At the end of 2004, a man named Larry Moulton allegedly gave Fred a rusty stained knife that belonged to his brother. He thought it could be a murder weapon. Any knife could be a murder weapon, right? <laughs> I, guess, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, All the ones in my kitchen. Could. Well, yep. <laughs> Larry's brother, Claude, had a criminal past and lived less than a mile from where the car was discovered in an A-frame home. The man and his girlfriend were said to have acted strangely after the disappearance. Moulton's knife was turned over to the New Hampshire State Police, but results were never released. Fred Murray petitioned New Hampshire Governor Craig Benson for help in the search. He appeared on the Montel Williams show in November 2004 to publicize the case. On the one-year anniversary of Mara Murray's disappearance, a service was held where her car had been found, and her father met with New Hampshire Governor John Lynch. In late 2005, Fred Murray filed suit against several law enforcement agencies. He wanted to see files on the case. The Murray family was upset that the police were treating the case as a missing persons case, not a criminal matter. The New Hampshire League of Investigators, 10 retired police officers and detectives, and the Molly Bish Foundation started working on the case in 2006. And we covered Molly Bish's case in episode 10, and that was a disappearance in 2000 that was never solved as well. In October 2006, volunteers led a two-day search near where Mars' car was found, and during that time frame, cadaver dogs were brought in on the scene and they ended up near an A-frame house that belonged to Claude Moulton. But by this time in 2006, he didn't live there. And so they go inside the house and in the closet of this house, the A-frame house, the cadaver dogs go off, which means they possibly, probably identified the presence of human remains. Possibly, probably, maybe. I so they pull up a sample of the carpet in the closet and then they send it to the New Hampshire State Police, but the results were not released and the chain of custody is unclear and the, and the samples were allegedly lost. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's one of those things that's a little unclear and I would like a little more clarity on that whole thing. that whole situation. Yeah. Hmm. Like all parts of this, but this is an interesting section. The Arkansas group Let's Bring Them Home offered a $75,000 reward in 2007 for information that could solve her disappearance. In July 2008, volunteers led another two-day search through wooded areas in Haverhill, and the group consisted of dogs and licensed private investigators. In February 2009, Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Strelzen said the investigation was still active. Quote, we don't know if Moore is a victim, but the state is treating it as a potential homicide. It may be a missing persons case, but it's being handled as a criminal investigation, end quote. In 2014, on the 10th anniversary of Mara's disappearance, Charleson stated, quote, we haven't had any credible sightings of Mora since the night she disappeared, end quote. 
In 2016, the Missing Mara Murray podcast returned to the A-frame house that Claude Moulton lived in. They found what appeared to be bloodstains in the closet. The wood chips were given to a molecular genesist who confirmed the presence of human blood. Unfortunately, the samples were too deteriorated to determine with 100% certainty if the blood was Mora's. Pretty interesting. But I bet you would find a lot of bloodstains in closets, which is kind of creepy. You think so? I bet there's probably blood in more places than we would think in our house. A closet? Especially if it's an old house. I I don't know. A shame, though, that they couldn't test it. In 2017, on the 13th anniversary of Mara's disappearance, Strelzen wrote to the Boston Globe in an email, quote, It's still an open case with periods of activity, and at times it goes dormant. There are no new updates to share at this time. In May of 2018, a GoFundMe was organized by Maggie Freelang on behalf of the Fine Mora Fund. She started the account to raise as much money as possible for technology to use ground-penetrating radar on the A-frame house and some other areas of interest in the area. The page had raised over $10,000. So then they used that money, and another search was conducted in 2019. The home in question was the target of increased speculation by private citizens. Ground-penetrating radar showed a disturbance in the home's basement. Investigators removed concrete and searched several feet down, but no evidence was found. In a Boston Globe article, Fred Murray said, quote, This one hurts because I thought we finally had it. This one is worse than the other false alarms and dead ends. I was pretty sure, end quote. That's heartbreaking. I also read on another page, like, Julie's reaction to that. So this was in, so this was in 2019. This was two years ago. Uh, yeah, what year is it? Two years ago. Um, and, I mean, this is the most action they had seen in this case in basically since it started. Right. Um, I, so it's kind of all speculation, but there were a lot of talks, I guess, like, rumors around people in the area. There were rumors that somebody stole or like abducted Mora and brought her to a party Mm -hmm. and maybe drugged her. I don't know. There were foul play involved and they ended up burying her beneath the basement of this house in the nearby area. And I guess that was just one of the rumors that kept coming up. So I think the family kind of got their hopes up and thought, well, and it is, that does make a lot of sense. Like that's one of the answers that I think would make a lot of sense. So I think they got their hopes up and they were able to do this ground penetrating radar and it just, it, it it hit on something, which, of course, is going to get your hopes up even more. Right, right. And I'm not even sure how ground-penetrating radar really works. I think we actually talked about it in another episode, but, of course, I forget at this point. So I don't really know what it picked up on, but, you know, they dug it up and looked down several feet. I don't know how many feet, but, I mean, they, there was nothing found. So that was a very disappointing dead end for the family obviously and everyone else that's been involved in this case and has been following it yeah i think that's a very recent activity that everyone thought was gonna bring something and it didn't unfortunately So here are some theories that other people have as well or conspiracies. So we're going to debunk them or not. Possibly you decide. Also, keep in mind all of this, obviously, rumors, speculation, things that are floating around that I think we should at least bring up and maybe lend some reasoning as to why it could be possible or not be possible. So take that with what you will. So this, so now this first one is kind of going back to before she ventures to New Hampshire when Mora's still at UMass. So we're kind of going back to the UMass scene for this first one. Street Bassey was hit at the intersection of Triangle Street and Mattoon Street. This is off campus, but still very close to campus, about a minute drive. It's near the downtown Amherst area where there's lots of shops, restaurants, and cafes. Patrit is found at 12.20 a.m. early Friday morning. Patrit was in a coma for two months following the accident with serious brain damage. And according to Patrit's mom, Patrit has absolutely no memory of getting hit that night. She feels that his case was not investigated thoroughly. Patrit has said that he does not want to know what happened to him that night and does not want to know who hit him. According to phone records, Mara called her boyfriend from 12.07 a.m. to 12.14 a.m. 
Right. So I think this gets brought up a lot because of the timing of everything. This is the Friday night. We had talked about last part, um, the couple of days before her disappearance, where she's working that Friday night, her security job at around 1 a.m. She's seen extremely distressed, very upset. And a lot of people try to connect because this was a big thing that happened on the campus. So I think a lot of people try to connect this to why she was so upset at around 1 a.m. They think she called Bill to, I don't know, say that something really bad happened to her. I don't know what a reaction would be if you hit someone. A lot of people bring this up. And I think it's extremely unlikely. So I kind of just wanted to bring it up and say, I don't think it's likely. I don't think it's something that you we should focus our efforts on during this case. I just think that it's very unlikely for a couple of reasons, but mostly because she was working security at the time that this accident was reported. So I, I think the theory is that she would have taken a break and gone out off campus and like gotten coffee and hit him and then come back to work. And that's why she was so upset. But I think it's extremely unlikely that somebody could take that long of a break without anyone knowing when you're working a security job. I do have screenshots here of like the security rules and regulations, I guess, at UMass. Shadow Emily, she sent me these. Thank you, because I was too lazy to look it up myself. So the residence hall security personnel staff are in the lobbies from 8 p.m. to 12 a.m. on week weekdays, but on weeknights, which this was, um, security is staffed in the lobby from 8 p.m. to 3 a.m. So she's there 8 p.m. to 3 a.m. Now, granted, you will get a break, and that's why area supervisors exist. Um, they check in, and they support the monitors by signing in, like, minor guests, and they do provide relief for breaks. However, you can't tell me that someone's going to go on a break and nobody knows about it. You would have to sign out, document that. Whoever's taking your place for that break would know you're gone because they're taking your place. So there's no reports of anybody filling in for her. Um, her supervisor who came by and saw her distraught would be the one that knows that she was on a break. So I don't think it's possible for her to go on a long break, go off campus, get coffee, come back, and this whole thing to happen. I think it's very doubtful. Was the screenshot from now or 2004? Screenshot was from now, but I think it's still applicable because I believe the hours would be the same back then. And also they had supervisors, so that's just what the supervisor's role was. I don't, I, yeah, I mean, it's true. It could have changed a bit from 2004 to now, but I think it's about the same. Another rumor is that Mar's father, Fred Murray, absolutely refused to meet with police for two years. And then he brought a lawyer when he finally met with them. And then people just assumed that he was part of her disappearance. And throughout our research, he was active in her search from day one when he found out. The 107 Degree podcast also debunked this with an article in the Boston Globe on December 29th, 2005 by the Attorney General at the time, Kelly Ayote. She is quoted saying, quote, Mr. Murray had frequent contact with both my office and members of the state police. In fact, I personally met with him along with lead investigators of the state police last spring, end quote. The attorney who met with AO at the time was Tim Irvin, who was helping Mr. Murray sue the state of New Hampshire for Mara's case records. Fred had, quote, frequent contact with police and sat down with Attorney General AO herself within the first year of Mara's disappearance. Another theory brings up the question that everyone wants to know, where was she going? Mara had a car full of stuff, alcohol, books, clothes, etc., and she had to have had a final destination in mind, but we don't know what that final destination was or the why, the motivation, and that's part of why this case is so frustrating. Bartlett, New Hampshire condo was where the Murrays had been on vacation before, and there's a lot of interest in this condo and speculation. You know, This is where Mara was ultimately trying to get to when she crashed her car in Haverhill, New Hampshire. Bartlett's about an hour and a half away from Haverhill, so Mara was not necessarily, quote, in the area when she went missing. However, the route she was taking was on the way up to Bartlett. So is it possible that the condo is where she was trying to end up with everything in this case? Maybe. It's possible. It's everything. possible. It's yes. Possible. <laughs> you can't rule it out. Mm. UMass Amherst's Outing Club owns a recreation cabin in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. Now, some people think Mara could have been heading there since it was about 35 minutes from the crash site. Again, 
possible. <laughs> and if you follow the theory that Mara was leaving to start a brand new life, she could have been heading anywhere in New Hampshire, Maine, or Canada. Possible. Possible. Or set sail for the big wide ocean. Yeah, possible. possible. <laughs> Although that's a bit more of a stretch, obviously. Um, but yeah, also just to mention, like if you look on Reddit or literally anything else, you'll find a million more theories of where she could have been headed. Possible. <laughs> I mean, it's all possibilities. We don't know. We don't have any proof of where she was headed. Correct. Except that she did call. The only thing that we know is that she did call Bartlett and she did call Vermont, but she didn't book anything definitively. Correct. So I guess that leads you to assume she was looking to go somewhere. Just don't know where. And yeah, I mean, that is just one of the most frustrating things of what it comes down to. It's just why was she there? Yeah, where why was, was she, she going? There? Why was she in her car? Well, she was driving. <laughs> why was she driving? Yeah, well, that I don't know. Oh. Um, all right, we'll jump into a few more rumors here. Another one is that prior to leaving Amherst, Maura had Google terms related to pregnancy. And obviously, that's led a lot of people to believe that she was pregnant, and that's why she wanted to get away. It has been reported that one of the items recovered from her car was birth control with four missing pills. Which, like, obviously, if she was taking birth control, like, the pills would be missing. And people take birth control for numerous reasons besides not just I would take that as actively. a sign that she's not pregnant. Yeah, that's what I would think. Or, I mean, I guess it would be a something that would lend you to think she's not pregnant. Maybe, she's actively trying not to. Right. Maybe in 2004 it just wasn't as – like birth control wasn't as common. The 107 Degree podcast features an entire episode dedicated to debunking this rumor – they start off by saying that one of Moore's nursing clinicals that semester was at Norwood Maternity in Norwood, Massachusetts. There's email trails that show she Googled maternity terms and put them together so that her nursing group could use it as a study guide. One of the last things she did before leaving Amherst was complete and submit that assignment via email. The subject of that email reads, Maternity Clinical Definitions, sent at 3.32 a.m. on the morning of February 9th. There you go. I mean, that's pretty definitive. An email of maternity clinical definitions. Probably why she was Googling pregnancy things. Probably. James Renner, an investigative journalist and the author of True Crime Addict, How I Lost Myself and the Mysterious Disappearance of Maura Murray, believes that Maura is still alive and planned her whole escape. Renner does think there is a possibility that Maura was pregnant. Renner reported that a friend of Morris had emailed him and accused Bill, Morris' boyfriend of the time, of being sexually abusive. In 2019, Bill was indicted in D.C. by a grand jury on a 2011 sexual abuse incident. Julie has said in interviews that the notion that Mora was pregnant and wanted to run away and that her father Fred helped her escape and gave her money was absolutely ridiculous. She does not buy the theory that A, Mora was pregnant and B, Fred tried to help her get away. And also, I, I don't quite fully understand that because I don't quite get the concept that she was pregnant, so she tried to run away. Like, how does that lend to that? Right. What are you running away from? Right. If your father's helping you run away, isn't he supporting you? Like, I, I don't get why people would think that flows easily to say she's pregnant, so she ran away. It's not like – it doesn't seem like a strict – family or environment where they would where she wouldn't want to be pregnant so i don't quite get it but right we're just letting you know what's out there there are also rumors out there a lot of speculation that perhaps mora was in a relationship with someone other than billy um a lot of people point out her uh, an assistant track coach at umass that they say she might have been having a relationship with at the time and that mixed with the UMass having the outing club cabin. I, some people think that might be related. Maybe she was heading there with um, this assistant track coach who apparently she was in a relationship with. But I think, again, this is all just speculation that no one can say is accurate or not. It all ties back to the big question. What actually happened tomorrow? What happened? I mean, all of these rumors and all of these speculations, I feel like, I feel like it's just a game where you have to just like shoot them down as they come up one by one by one. And like, it seems like none of these are really helping us to actually get further. To yeah. It's like 
putting answer. it off course. Yeah, you're just like putting out fires as they come up almost, like trying to de- trying to debunk things or like the smallest thing. Be- okay, she Googled this, so this is what happened. Or right. like she's pregnant, or this is what happened. She was having an affair. This is what happened. Like, no, they're all just speculation. Well, and but I get it. Like you ha- that's what you have to do is to find the facts. Look into everything. It's almost just like you look into it. Is it possible? No. And let's leave it behind because there's a million other things to look into. Is it possible? Okay, then keep it on the radar. So it's so hard to sort through all of these things because it's almost everything is like, well, I don't know. I guess it's possible. Right. So like, everything is staying on the radar. Is it an important fact? Is this going to break open the case? Like this small fact? Right. Maybe. I don't know. But all of that is to say there's so many different ideas of what actually happened to Mora that night. There are four predominant theories, I guess you could say, as to what happened to Mara. It, it basically comes down to a handful of things of what happened to her after that crash in Haverhill. One, she wanted to start a new life. It was planned. It wasn't an accident. Or maybe the car crash was, but she wanted to leave. She wanted to start a new life. Two, she actually wanted to commit suicide. Maybe she wanted to go to the mountains to commit suicide. Maybe she wanted to go to the Bartlett, New Hampshire condo. Maybe a different way. Who knows? That's just one of the theories is that she did not die accidentally. Three, she died of exposure. So she died of the elements. I mean, she was in New Hampshire in the winter. If she did leave her car, started walking, however it happened, if she was out in the cold, she might have died from that. Four, she was abducted. So Foul play. Foul play, basically. I mean, that obviously leaves the door open to a million different things but in general foul play could have been involved and with any of these series you can now look at a million different theories was she alone in the car was somebody else there um the parallel car theory i don't know what you call it with somebody yeah someone following tandem there you go yeah the tandem car theory where somebody's driving behind her following her she gets into the crash they pick her up and she drives off with them very plausible. A million different things. I mean, there are so many unknowns, so many missing links that we need to find out. The only thing we do know is that a young woman crashed her car and was last seen outside on February 9th, 2004 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. And that's the last time we know we've seen Mora. So this brings us to possible sightings of Mara Murray. Which could tie into theories, conspiracies, rumors, etc. In 2018, there was a video clip posted to YouTube which featured a young girl and a woman who many people thought looked a lot like Mara. They were outside of a preview screening for The Force Awakens in 2015. And the person who posted the clip originally on Reddit deleted their profile. And the video was deleted from YouTube. But people found the person who posted the video, of course, and they posted the video on Twitter and Instagram, confirmed that that person is not Mara Murray. One trail that you can actually say there's no, there's an end to. Correct. (laughs) Okay. Some of the more alleged popular sightings of Mara took place in Quebec City in Canada, and James Renner had an experience in Quebec City where he stopped at a record store and asked the employees if they had seen a missing woman, handed them Mars' photo. No one said anything, but he later got a message from one of the employees saying, yeah, I recognize her. She claimed Mara had been in the record store and talked to her. Uh, nothing was ever found out from that avenue. Uh, yeah, he kept, if you go on to, so James Renner has a, a blog. I think if you're familiar with this case, you're familiar with him and his blog. Um, it's pretty extensive. He does have multiple posts about this incident. Um, it's interesting. I don't know how much we can take from it. I don't want also want to talk for him, so you might want to just go over there and look at it for yourself. But basically, he's he's gone to Canada and just like asked everyone if they know her and handed out photos everywhere. And I guess this record shop, he got hit later that some girl recognized her. So then we asked Julie, you know, how do you take all of these tips and sightings? Do you follow every single one? Because again, one of them could be a possibility. And she said that usually um, she'll get the photos from the police. They'll collect them or they'll give the tips and they'll filter them through. And she said one time she was sitting in the police station and on the desk were just 
like not hundreds, but a lot of photos spread out before her. And she said within seconds, she could just say, nope, that's not her. Nope, that's not her. Again, this is her sister. So she mm-hmm. would know who she looks like, obviously. Yeah, and that's she would the be, best option for the police yeah. to her in to look at that. <laughs> She'd obviously know what her sister looked like. But she said nobody. And there were a lot of photos in front of her, but none of them were her sister. Yeah, and I can't even imagine that feeling of being like, okay, I'm about to sit down and look at a bunch of people that might be my missing sister. Right. And I might think one of them is her. Right. That's crazy. But she talks about that experience and that the whole notion of how to sort through these tips and possible sightings and how she deals with it. She talks about that more in our interview with her. Mara Murray's case has been featured on ABC's 2020, Disappearance, The Oxygen Channel, Montel Williams, Dr. Oz, E! News, People, Daily Mail, New York Daily News, and numerous other media and news outlets. Some good podcasts about this, if you are interested in diving deeper, is the 107 Degree Podcast, Mara Murray, Missing Mara Murray, and True Crime Garage on episode 293 and 294. They do an interview with Julie Murray as well. There's also a million other ones too. I mean, you could just Google if you want to. Honestly, if you have a favorite true crime podcast, chances are they probably have covered Mara's case, but those were some good ones. To this day, the Murray family continues to actively search for answers in an effort to find Mara Murray. There is a campaign for Mara. Since 2004, a blue ribbon has been placed around a tree near the location Mara was last seen before vanishing without a trace. The Murray family officially launched Mars' hashtag Blue Ribbon campaign in July of 2020 to remember and honor Mora. In 2020, the New Hampshire State House passed HB 1255, a bill that would have torn down Mars' Blue Ribbon. If not removed voluntarily, the New Hampshire Department of Transportation would be authorized to remove and dispose of any memorial 90 days after the date of the event being memorialized. The Murray family contacted leaders in the state Senate to voice opposition to the bill. Mara's sister, Julie, said, quote, My family has no grave to visit or ashes to scatter. The Blue Ribbon is a living tribute to Mara's memory and the only place my family and the amazing community of supporters have to remember her. HB 1255 and any Senate companion bill will destroy the only sacred place we have connecting us to Mara, end quote. Ultimately, the measure was defeated, ensuring that Mara's Ribbon and other roadside memorials would remain temporarily protected, at least for the time. But unfortunately, we have recently learned that local landowners informed the Murrays of their plan to cut down the tree with Mora's blue ribbon. The Murray family was in communication with the landowners in hopes of striking a deal that would save the tree. But unfortunately, the tree was ultimately cut down um, just a couple months ago, around February or March of 2021 this year. Julie Murray said in a Boston 25 Live article, quote, I pleaded with them to spare one of the trees, a couple of the trees. They were unwilling to compromise. Since we don't have any ashes to spread or a gravesite to visit, that tree was our memorial. It's the only thing that we have left, end quote. On October 16th, 2020, an official request was submitted to the New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources to erect a state highway historical marker recognizing the disappearance of Mara Murray at the location she was last seen on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire in 2004. FYI, there are more than 200 official highway markers in New Hampshire. There's even one that commemorates the UFO abduction in 1961 of Barney and Betty Hill, which we do cover in season one. Episode 15, a little plug for ourselves. Yeah, go check it out if you haven't listened to it. Yeah, but there's even a highway marker for that, which I didn't know about. And Julie actually let us know. She she talks about this more in the interview. The official request the Murray family put forward includes draft marker text voted on by 724 supporters, letters of support from the Murray family and Dr. Robert McDonald, who's the professor of history at USMA, Pen, ink, and online petitions with 3,367 signatures from 50 states, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and 42 different countries. So needless to say, the support was there. If you visit moramurraymissing.org, there is a call to action on the website that pops up that says, call and email your support for Mora's historical marker request to remember and honor her. 
The active button says contact New Hampshire officials and brings you to a call to action page. The call to action lists three ways you could help. One, email New Hampshire Historical Resources staff so you can write a custom message of support or there's an option to just cut and paste and edit the sample message provided. Two, call New Hampshire Historical Resources staff. Supporters can call the New Hampshire office and urge Mr. Ben Wilson and his team to strongly consider approving the application for the historical marker. And three, share with your friends. Ask everyone you know to help join you in emailing and calling the New Hampshire Historical Resources to show support for approving the historical marker. So on this episode, I think it's important to reiterate, yes, we cover a lot of the quote-unquote popular theories that are floating out there in the internet, the crime community, the clickbait news, and the Reddit forums. And it's so easy to say like, oh, this could have happened, or maybe this happened. This is what she did. But the fact is no one knows except for the facts. No one knows what happened definitively. Or maybe someone does know, but they haven't come forward to tell the police. So while these theories and conspiracies could be avenues of the truth, they can also do harm. For example, some people who are remotely related may be scared to come tell the truth, even if it's just a small detail to the police because they don't want to be dragged into the media or they don't want their name to suddenly be raked over the coals and then they'll be the next person that's looked at, you know? So I think that's really important to remember when we go over this. Like, yes, we did want to present you with what is floating out there simply for the fact to go over that they're debunked or they could be debunked or, you know, maybe don't spend so much time on X, Y, and Z. So we wanted to try to bring that back at the end. Yeah. I I think it's so hard because we don't want to cloud it with more murkiness of, oh, this could have happened, this could have happened. Like we want to focus on what happened for sure, but how are we going to do that besides trying to wean through all of the unknowns, you know? So Right. It's a thin line. So hard. And I think the online community, for the most part, is doing their best to actually really try to get down to the details of everything. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's more harmful than we think it is. Just because we're dragging somebody's name through the mud who actually isn't involved at all. Or, and I I think this happens a lot too, where it's like someone just comes up with one idea and we say it so much that That it becomes a fact now in the case. And that happens a lot. And then... now it's like something we thought is true now now it's not so maybe that's not an avenue anymore so it's so hard to keep track of everything but it's just tough because it's like what's that thing now that's gonna actually give us an answer which i think is why it was so heartbreaking when they did the ground penetrating radar and didn't find anything because i think at this point right like our moat like we're just gonna have to find something or someone's gonna have to come forward that hasn't yet I think that's where a lot of the hope lies now. And you'll hear about this more in part three, but it's important to remember that Mara was a person, not a character in a wild story, and the Murray family are people who lost a loved one. I don't have a concrete theory of what happened here, because I think this would be the part where we would say, this is what I think happened at the end of all of this, sorting through everything. But I truly don't have like a theory of, I think this happened, then this, then this, and this is where she is. Because how could you? There's nothing. I mean, you can have assumptions, whatever. But I do think at first I kind of thought that maybe she did just walk into the woods because she was nervous and wanted to hide or something. But that kind of makes no sense after thinking about it for a while. There's no footprints in the snow. I don't think she would have just walked into the snow. She's not a dumb girl at all. She's a very smart girl. So I, I, I think in this case that there was foul play. And I think that... It's tough that we haven't found any evidence or any remains because I think probably most likely they're on private property. And so how are we going to get to private property if, you know, somebody is there? I mean, we, you can't just search anywhere you want to. You can only search public land. So I think, unfortunately, the evidence that we have to find is just on private property. And I think it's going to be a while until either A, someone comes forward or B, ownership gets switched out at a certain place and we we end up finding something from a new owner maybe i don't know interesting yeah i that's not the most concrete theory i guess you've ever heard in your life but but it's a theory so this wraps up part two of our 
three-part season closer. And next week, we will be joined by Julie Murray, Mara Murray's older sister. We hope you can join us to learn more about the case. Like all missing persons cases, the more widespread a case is, the more chances it has to be solved. Please share this case with anyone interested in learning more about Mar and her disappearance. The Murray family believes now more than ever that Mar will be found. Right. And it all comes down to exposure at this point. So please, everyone, share the story, share the podcast, share our podcast. Sure, it can't hurt. And if you do have any tips, you can email the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. Yes, please. Even if you're not sure if it's helpful, but you remember something from that night, we need someone to remember something. We need people to come forward. We need to solve this thing. That's yes. the goal. Yes. So with that, I think mm -hmm. that wraps up part two. That's everything we needed to say. Come back next week for part three, which is our interview with Julie Murray. And in the meantime, um, go follow us on Instagram. We'll, we'll put some more pictures up from the case. Find us at Killer Babes Podcast on Instagram. Killer Babes Pod on Twitter. Killer Babes Podcast on Facebook. And then email us at Killer Babes Podcast at gmail.com. If there's anything you're wondering about, any theories you have that you want to share, anything you, anything you think we got wrong because we definitely definitely might have we don't claim to be perfect let us know and we can always do an update or an addendum to these episodes if we think something needs to be adjusted and that's it that's a wrap that's a wrap all right thank you guys bye see ya